All right, we're going to start out with the word this morning, and then we will move into a time of worship and response to what this text has to say to us. So open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 14 again, and then we're just going to camp out in verse 7, because it's just a pretty awesome verse. And so I'll skim over the rest of it, but verse 7 is just strikingly good news for all of us today. So how many of you like good news? Today, you get strikingly good news. And the central idea of this text, just in the second half, is that we begin with a debt we cannot pay, and we end with an inheritance that we do not deserve. You begin with a debt you cannot pay and end with an inheritance you do not deserve. As you look at this section of Scripture, as I told you last week, it's the grammar of the gospel. It starts out with the indicatives of who we are before it moves to the imperatives of what we should do. If you were to look at this a different way, today in particular, we're going to hit verses 9 and 10. And verse 10, many believe, is the central theme of the entire book of Ephesians, where it talks about how God is uniting all things in himself, in Jesus, everything in heaven and on earth. So all of the bad stuff we see, all the things we don't like, united in Jesus, set a new theme of the book of Ephesians. You could even look at this particular section of scripture and see a Trinitarian theme because it's God who has elected us, who has chosen us, who has predestined us. It's Jesus who in him we have been reconciled, we have been redeemed, we have been forgiven. We have all of these blessings in Jesus. And then it's through the Holy Spirit that we are sealed and that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee for the promised inheritance. So you can even see a Trinitarian theme as you walk through this particular passage. The problem is when you walk through this passage, there are so many blessings. How many of you have little siblings at home? Have you ever paid attention on Christmas morning when little children in particular, not, not when we get older and we only get one or two things or we get really big things, but when they're smaller and it seems like there are just hundreds of things that they're getting on Christmas morning and they walk in on Christmas morning, they begin to open up all of these different things or they're all sitting there and there's this overwhelming look over the face of the child and that I don't know what to play with first. Do any of you remember that feeling? Some of you do. Some of you still long for that feeling, but now you get bigger gifts and they cost more and you don't get nearly as many of them. In this text of scripture, we are overwhelmed with all of the blessings that we could spend days talking about and we just don't grasp the significance of what's in 3 through 14, some of the richest portions of scripture. So I wanna read it to you and I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14. We'll focus in on seven and following, but I wanna read the entire sentence. One sentence in the Greek. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. I want to read that verse again. That is a gospel synopsis. It is the gospel in one verse. In him, Jesus, 
We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Dear Lord, I pray that today you would just help us to catch a glimpse of who you are, a glimpse of your glory. And Lord, may we respond appropriately in praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So when you look at this entire passage, this entire sentence of three through 14, we look at all of the blessings for identity in Christ. When you drill down a little deeper, you notice that verse nine and 10 are there, nine and 10, 10 particularly, basically the theme of the entire book on uniting all things in Christ Jesus. And so today we look at three different ways we're united. We're gonna look first at the uniting of trespassers to God. We're gonna look second at the uniting of all things in Jesus. And we're gonna look third at the uniting of believers through the spirit. But we're gonna spend a lot of time on verse seven because of the words that are there and all of the meaning that is buried in that particular section of scripture. Verses seven and eight, uniting trespassers to God. It says this, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We begin with a debt that we cannot pay. We need to be redeemed. We need to make sure that we have redemption. Redemption in the biblical concept means this, liberation from slavery upon the payment of a ransom liberation from slavery upon the payment of a ransom. Now, that's not what we think about when we think of the word redeem right off the bat, is it? What do you think about when I say redeem? Perhaps it's redeem a coupon. You have a coupon, you're gonna go to the store, you're gonna redeem it. Perhaps you think of I'm gonna redeem my Sky Miles or my airline miles, or I'm gonna redeem my awards points on my Visa card. So on my Visa card, I have a Cabela's Club visa because I like to hunt and I don't like to pay the prices for all the nice hunting stuff. So we spend money and on that card, I get these points so then I can go to Cabela's and I can use my points and feel like I'm buying stuff for free because I have redeemed my points. My points are sitting on the side in some account and they're worthless until I actually put them into use and they're to be used. But we might even think of redeemed as one of those football players who made a really bad play yesterday and then all of a sudden they say he has the opportunity for redemption. He has redeemed himself or she has redeemed herself in some setting. That's not the biblical concept that we're talking about when we think of redemption though. When we think of redemption, remember our central idea is that we begin with a debt that we cannot pay. We end with an inheritance we do not deserve. Redemption goes back to the children of Israel who were in slavery. And as they were in slavery, they had no hope. They had no option. 
Anything they did would have been a bad idea. The Egyptians were much more powerful. There was nothing that they could do. And yet God in his grace adopted them as his chosen people so that he could free them. And you know the story of the 10 plagues and bringing them out. And you remember the Passover lamb that it was by the blood that the eldest son would be saved and that they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. And here we get the connotation of the word redeem or redemption that we see here in verse 7. In verse 7, it says that in Jesus, we have redemption. Now, let me give you a few truths about the word redemption. First of all, redemption presupposes bondage. You cannot redeem yourself. There is nothing that you can do as a son or daughter of Adam to save yourself. All of your good works, honestly, have filthy backings to them. Even when you think you're doing something nice, inside your motivation might be so other people would think that you're a nice person or so that other people would see you. Even our best deeds are as filthy rags before God. God has these rules. We have violated them. We are then enslaved to our own sin. And some of you may actually think or you may have a friend who thinks they're free. I don't want to become a Christian because if I become a Christian, God's going to tell me what to do and I have freedom right now. And they think they have freedom, but in essence, that freedom is not freedom. It's slavery to sin. They are so warped in their mindset that they think they can do what they want to do, but all they want to do is be enslaved to their own sinful actions. We went scuba diving this past summer. When we were on one of the boats, we jumped off of one of the boats and, and there was a fairly strong current and they had told us there was a strong current but we, we get in the water and you don't feel like you're moving. You're just sitting in the water. And all of a sudden you look up at the boat that is anchored down to the bottom of the ocean and the boat is going farther and farther and farther away. So perhaps you decide I'm gonna swim back to the boat and you begin to start swimming as fast as you can possibly swim. And the boat is still going farther and farther and farther away. Because even though you don't know that you're in a current, you're in a current pulling you farther and farther away from the anchor that is there in front of you. And that's life. Without God, without redemption, without the Holy Spirit, we are running away from God. We are in the current of life pulling us farther and farther and farther away from a holy God. And we can't swim back. We need the boat to come pick us up and offer us a lifeline. And they throw the line out and all you have to do is grab a hold of the line. They'll pull you in. There's nothing that you can do. Redemption presupposes bondage. Redemption is also costly. Notice what it says in the text. It says that we have been redeemed through his blood. Now, we can look at this and say, oh, this is simple. We get this. We understand this. There was the Passover lamb. There was the blood that went on the doorpost and the eldest son then would not be killed by the death angel. You move forward, you see John the Baptist. He looks across to the other side and he says, behold, the lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And Jesus then dying on a cross as the perfect ultimate sacrifice, the one that all of those other sacrifices were pointing to. We get it, we see it. But theologically, this is huge because it says we were redeemed not by a good example, it says we weren't redeemed by a person who did good things, but we were redeemed by his blood. So that means on the cross, there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be a penalty that was paid. And there's a lot of people that you will encounter throughout life that don't like the penal substitutionary view of atonement. 
that Jesus actually had to pay my penalty and had to pay my price and that he had to die and that he had to shed his blood in order to cover me. But it's what this text is saying to us is that I was in such bondage that it was through the blood of Jesus that that's the way I was redeemed out of my slavery. So I was bought with a costly price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, for you were bought with a price. The price is his blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, you were ransomed, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus was not just a good example for us to follow. Jesus did not just show us love on the cross. Jesus paid our price and shed his blood in my place so that I could be redeemed out of slavery to my own sin. That's what happened in the atonement. Redemption will also be completed in the resurrection. He has redeemed us fully and completely. He has redeemed us from sin. He has redeemed us from these failing bodies that continue to fail the older you get. And in the resurrection, you will receive a glorious new body. The corruptible will become incorruptible. There will be a day where you will be fully redeemed. This is the remarkable truth about redemption. You start out with a debt you cannot pay. It says he has redeemed us. He has redeemed us through his blood. There's a story in the Old Testament, a record in the book where Hosea and Gomer. Hosea takes a wife, says in the text that the wife is not faithful to him. It walks through this text and it jumps over to chapter three and it says to them, go and take a wife again. And the imagery there, you can skip right past, but the imagery there is where you have Gomer who is then being auctioned off on the block. She is old by this time. She has been through many different things. And the, the Lord tells Hosea, Hosea, you go and buy her back. And Hosea went and bought her back for a price and brought her back to himself because at that particular moment, she was in bondage. She was in slavery and he had redeemed her and redeemed her back so that she could then again be his wife. It's just a foreshadow of what happens when we spiritually play the harlot and sell our souls, give our souls, give our allegiance, create idols to things other than God. And God, through his grace and God, through his mercy, goes to a cross and redeems us when we have no hope. He redeems us by his blood, the forgiveness, forgiveness. That word means to remove the guilt resulting from wrongdoing to pardon, to forgive. Let's look at some issues about forgiveness here. First of all, Jesus has the power to forgive us. You say, well, how can he forgive us? You remember the story where they took the, the paralyzed man and they, they couldn't get into the building. There were so many people, so they went up on the roof. They undid the roof. They lowered him down. When they lowered him down, Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. And he knows because he's God. He knows what other people are thinking. And at that point, he says to them, well, what is easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? So then he looks at this guy and he says to him, take up your bed and walk. And the guy who's never walked before, a guy who doesn't understand how to walk. And when things happen to us and you forget how to walk, you have to, to stabilize or when you're a baby, you fall a whole lot when you're first learning how to walk. And then you have the Frankenstein walk where you just kind of are really awkward as you walk and you kind of tumble forward till you go into something. And then you learn how to walk. He looks at this guy and he says, take up your bed and walk. The guy gets up, he takes up his bed. He's got muscle control and he walks, which is easier. It's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven because 
You can't disprove that, right? So then he says, take up your bed and walk so that everybody will know Jesus has the power to forgive sins. So I say to you this morning, the good news, you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ who has the power to forgive your sins. And he has the power to forgive all of your sins. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The parable is given in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Those who have sinned more, those who have been forgiven of a greater debt, may in fact love more. So perhaps you're here and you're sitting in this audience and you're really thinking to yourself, I don't know if God can forgive me for what I've done. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad it is. Jesus can forgive you of all of your sins. And not only can he, but his word says if you confess them, he's faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. For you to sit there and say, I don't know that Jesus could forgive me of all of my sins is to doubt the word of God, to doubt the Bible, and to call into question Jesus' word. It's a lie from Satan. Can he really forgive me for what I've done? Yes, he can. And anything that tells you he can't is a lie from Satan that must be replaced with the truth that Jesus can forgive you for all that you have done. Your debt, if you are forgiven, has been paid. So you can't pay it, so stop trying. I encounter people and have conversations sometimes and it's almost as if they feel like they repeatedly have to pay for their, their sins over and over and over again because we feel like I have to do something. But the truth of the matter is you can't do anything. You can't pay for your sin. And the other truth is it's already been paid for. So somebody goes out to eat with you and you paid for the meal and you look at the waitress and say, I wanna pay for it too. And the waitress looks at you and goes, that's ludicrous, you're crazy. It's already been paid for. You don't have to pay for it anymore. And in fact, biblically, you can't pay for it anymore. There's nothing you can do. So stop trying to pay for a debt that's already been paid. And then finally on this one, we must forgive others as Jesus forgave us. This is hard for us sometimes. But one of the truths of understanding that we are forgiven and that we have been redeemed is that Jesus then calls us to forgive others. And he calls us to do this in many different places. Father, forgive me of my trespasses as I forgive those who have trespassed against me in the model prayer. In the parable of the unforgiving servant where he says, if you don't forgive others, then neither will I forgive you. There are things that happen to us in this life and it's really difficult for us to forgive and to let go of those things that happen to us. But God's word calls us because of the great debt for which we've been forgiven to forgive others when they offend us as well. So we are demonstrating the gospel when we forgive others. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of what? The forgiveness of our trespasses. What is a trespass? It's to go across a line that has been established. It's to violate a rule. It's to commit a wrong. And the real issue for us spiritually is that God is a holy God. He is a just God. And that one sin places us in condemnation. Now, 
We say that and we think, oh, just one sin. Well, most of us don't have to worry about that because we do one sin every day or every hour or every so often. It's not just one sin on our part, but yes, even one sin, one violation of the law, James says, makes you guilty of the whole law. And so we have trespassed. We have done things that are wrong. We do trivial things that are wrong, like taking forks out of chucks when we need one back in our dorm room. Trivial things that are wrong. We do things that are even more seriously wrong, like swipe and scatter. Of course, none of you do that at all. You don't even know what that means, right? Or scan and scram, because, I mean, goodness, you would never cheat on attendance to chapel, would you? Or we do things that may just be dumb, like running three abreast on Bridge Street where there are cars coming around corners all the time and things of that nature somebody's either done it or they've about hit somebody doing it because I heard you clap over there. So yeah, thank you for that. Or wearing workout pants when you're not working out. Or... (laughs) It's against the rules. Or this board looks like my board. It's not my board because I didn't bring my board. I left my board back over at the dorm, but this board looks like my board, so I'm gonna borrow this board because I'm late for class because I talked to somebody a little too long and off you go on somebody else's bike or board. (whistles) I I don't know what that means. Either they've done it or... (laughs) Is this confession time? Should we sing just as I am and stop right here? All right. (laughs) I, I mentioned some trivial things. Number one, to remind you we should not do those things in a way that is right and appropriate. You haven't done it this semester, but the walk of shame. How many of you know what the walk of shame is? See, I haven't talked about this enough. The walk of shame is when you're sitting up in the balcony areas over here on the side and you decide it's much closer if you just walk down to the front in the middle of the sermon to exit the building. And it's even worse if you decide to go out these doors over here on the side. Because what happens to any preacher who's preaching and doesn't know this is they think you're coming to get them. And all of a sudden you see them start looking out the corner of their eye over to the side. And then you start noticing their body shifting. And everybody in the audience, when you're up here especially, they they look like this. (laughs) And so the preacher is looking at all the heads in the audience doing this. So then what am I going to do? <laughs> and then none of us are listening to what's in the text. That's trivial. But think about all the real trespasses we commit each and every day. The little lies to make ourselves feel better. The sarcasm that is really truth biting against another individual. The deceptiveness, the self-centeredness, the idolatry. All of these things that we do, trespasses against God's law, we have no hope. The only hope is here for us in verse seven. And in verse seven, it tells us that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And to that we all say, hallelujah and amen. God's grace, God's mercy. We start with a debt that we cannot pay. There is nothing that we can do. We have to move on. As we move on in verse eight, it says, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. What is the mystery of his will according to those purposes he set forth in Christ? Here you go in verse 10. 
as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus, all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Everything that is not right with the world will one day be right with the world. All of the evil and wickedness and everything we see that we look at and we just don't like and it's not appropriate and we know it and we see it, it's all gonna be set right one day when God puts everything the way that it should be. He does this according to the purpose of his will and this is repeated. So when we're studying our Bible, when we're preparing to teach or preparing for a message, we always circle or highlight those repeated phrases and we see in verse five, it says according to the purpose of his will. We see in verse nine, it says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. And then in verse 11, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is God's plan. God's plan and God's will is to one day make everything turn out okay. Now we should notice in this text that the focus is on Jesus. The focus is not on us. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I have a tendency to get self-centered. I have a tendency to look in the mirror and think the entire world revolves around this space right here, this, this two feet, right? This is it. This is where the whole world centers. And anytime I think I have that conquered, I begin to think about things that didn't go my way. And all of a sudden, I want to go back to Burger King where I can have it my way. And I look in the mirror and it's all about me again, right? And that's my temptation. I'm sure it's some of yours as well. But when we look at this text and we realize it's all about Jesus, we need to think about the fact that we really are just the pawn in the master's chess game. We are the bit actor who probably doesn't even have any lines because we're not recording scripture. You don't have any lines in the grand play playing out on the stage of the universe. We are the servant in the king's court sweeping up the dust over to the side and we should be very happy to be the servant in the king's court. Because remember, we were the slave in bondage until he redeemed us by his blood. We are the water boy of God's football team. I don't mean that to demean water boys, but we often don't think of ourselves and put ourselves as the water boy. We put ourselves as the star running back, the quarterback, the wide receiver, the linebacker. And here it's all about God's purposes to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus. It's not about us. The word plan here is economia. At its most basic level means household management. So think about God's divine rule over all of the universe and his far-reaching plan that he was not surprised by the sin that took place in the garden. He was not surprised by the devil's rebellion. He is not surprised by anything that happens. We don't believe in what's called open theism. We believe that God, knowing everything in his word with all of the prophecies, knows how it's gonna end. And one day he's gonna make everything right in heaven and on earth and put it all back under Jesus. And you know what that means? That means I don't have to worry about it. The universe is not under my control and I don't have to orchestrate things to make things work out. In the economy of God, I just need to be a good servant. In the economy of God, I start with a debt that I cannot pay and I end up with an inheritance I do not deserve. So what are you so stressed out about? So what are you depressed about? So what are you worried about? God is faithful, you can trust him. He's got this. You don't have to have everything under control because he already does. That's the purpose of the book. You say, but you don't understand my circumstances. Let me remind you where Paul was when he wrote this letter. 
in jail. No cell, no chains, no bondage, no circumstances kept Paul from looking at the great grand picture of all of the blessings that we have in Christ and of what God is going to do in Jesus. So I would say to you this morning, life is only about 10% what happens to you and about 90% how you deal with it. Your disposition in life should not be determined by what happens to you, but how you handle it. And this is how we have peace and joy is an eternal perspective, understanding that one day God's going to set everything right. He's got this and we don't have to worry about it. This is what we see. Verses 9 and 10, uniting all things in Jesus. We see also that he's uniting trespassers to God. He's uniting all things in Jesus. And then he's uniting believers through the Holy Spirit. In this, we look at verses 11 through 14. In him, we haven't obtained an inheritance. So there you see it. We start with a debt, we end with an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So there, the Jews, the first, the disciples, the first to hope in him are to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him, you also, us, those of the Ephesians, and by circumstance, all of us, the Gentiles, as we'll find out later in chapter two, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the word of truth being the gospel, James talks about the word of truth, the word of truth defined here with the qualifier, the word of truth, the gospel. When you heard that word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, this is the great parallel statement here because we all talk about the predestination of the election. What does that mean? How does that work? Does that mean I don't have to go share the gospel because God's gonna save them anyway? Does that mean I don't need to be worried about missions because God's gonna save them anyway? And yet here's the parallel statement, the balancing statement, because it's the word of truth, the gospel in which we believe. The gospel that must be presented. So if we're really worried about what happens to those who may never hear, go tell them. Go share the gospel with them. Go present the truth of God's word with them so that they can know the truth and respond and believe through the gospel in him. Human responsibility right alongside the divine initiative. And here it says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And what does sealing mean? You think of a sealant that you put on your teeth that keeps things out. That's not exactly what he's talking about. We think of a seal in some senses as a stamp or a brand. I don't know that that's exactly what he's talking about either. You could think of a seal that's on the electronics that when you open the box, particularly to maybe your Apple product, you open that box, you've peeled the seal off, they know it's been opened, that it's been uh, tampered with at some level at that point, so you can't just return it necessarily. You think about the movie that when you peel that little label off, that little uh, stripe that tells you that it's been sealed, then all of a sudden you can't take it back as though it's new because it's been opened. Or those medicine bottles that you have to make sure the seal is broken to know nobody tampered with it or the drink or whatever it may be. There's a seal on there and that seal says you can't mess with this. This has not been messed with. This has not been tampered with. We think about other implications of sealing, legal documents that upon completion, they are stamped. Or I have a stamp that goes in the front of all of my books and I can stamp it and it says from the library of Thomas White. So that way, if you borrow a book and don't bring it back, every time you open that book, you're gonna get convicted because you stole that book and you didn't bring it back. And it's right there on the front page, right? Ownership, a team puts a logo onto a jersey and it says you play for this team. Brands, we like brands. 
They put their logo onto their shirts. Some brands, a lot more expensive than others, but you're branded. In old days, cattle were branded. Sometimes slaves were branded. Authenticity. You sign your name to a letter. This came from me. In old days, they had the wax that they would melt. I actually still have one of these with a W. You can melt the wax and you can put it onto something. You stamp into it and it would give you the wax seal. And if that wax seal had been broken, then you knew it had been messed with. Security and protection, the seal upon the grave that the Romans put, the tape that the police tape off to say, don't mess with this particular area. It has been sealed off. All of these things and more are true with the sealing of the Holy Spirit. God has redeemed us according to his blood. He has forgiven us of his trespasses and then he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit he promised in the Old Testament and that Jesus promised that Holy Spirit now lives within us, sealing us until the day of redemption. So you can't lose your salvation because Christ achieved your salvation through the redemption of his blood and he has sealed you and you have been adopted so that you're part of his family and that is permanent and it can't go away. So if you have truly repented of your sins and received the good news, the gospel, the word of truth, you are saved. Well, it doesn't mean you should go and sin and do other things. If you do that, you truly haven't understood the grace and love of God. But you are sealed. It's a guarantee as well. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of the inheritance that is to come. This word guarantee, originally a Hebrew word, came into the Greek, probably through Phoenician traders. In modern Greek, it's used for an engagement ring. So we're on a college campus, ring by spring, whatever. But some of you will get an engagement ring. What does that engagement ring mean? Why is it that when I look on Facebook, why is it now that everybody has to have the perfect picture of their proposal too, by the way? That's just undue pressure, all right? Just, goodness, I don't know how you guys pull it off. I feel sorry for you guys because you not only have to figure out how you're gonna engage, uh, propose to the woman and hope that she says yes, but you, and you have to figure out how to do it real nice, but then you have to figure out how to plan the perfect photographer sitting up in the tree three miles away with a zoom lens or something. <laughs> I mean, like, come on, it's hard enough to get the words out, right? I mean, we didn't have that pressure. I'll, I, the photographer wasn't in the picture, but it's got to be Facebook official now. So guys, I pray for you. I'm sorry. But why is it that it's so important? It's because that engagement ring is a promise of a guarantee of what's to come, which is a wedding. Now, if you're feeling the pressure about the ring by spring, let me remind you, work on becoming the right person, not finding the right person. God worry about all the other stuff. It's also like a guarantee of a deposit, a down payment. You made a deposit to become a student at Cedarville. We held your spot. You make a down payment on a car or a house. You're going to pay the rest of it off. It's a pledge. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's way of saying, here's a taste of what's to come. Here's a guarantee. Here's a pledge. Here's a deposit of what will happen and what will come. So today we started with a debt that we couldn't pay we end with an inheritance that we don't deserve. So how do we respond to this? We respond to all of this grace with praise for the glory of a gracious God. The purpose of this is to praise his glory. Look in verse six. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Look at verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 14. 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Repetition. We underline, we circle, we note three times to the praise of his glorious grace. So how do we respond? In praise. Why did all of this happen? By his good pleasure of his will. What do we do in response to it? Praise his glorious grace. All of the things that have happened in life to you don't define you. They might help explain you with the exception of redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ. To discover your true identity, don't listen to the lies, but listen to the one who made us, to the one who knows us, and to who he says we are. Chosen, not forsaken, loved, not despised, adopted, not orphaned, redeemed, not enslaved, forgiven, not guilty, accepted, not rejected, a child of God, free at last by his grace to our good and for his glory. Dear Lord, now as we respond through offering praise and singing and worship to you through music, may you help our hearts just to be overfilled with joy. May whatever despair that the devil was trying to creep in, whatever discouragement, whatever anxiety, whatever stress that this world may bring, may we always remember who we are in you and the grace that you've given us. And Lord, may we know that you will make all things right. Lord, we love you and praise you for your glorious grace. Amen.